The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning, church. Welcome to Name Tag Sunday. I am Linnell, and I invite you who are here in the building and you who are joining us from home uh, to please stand if you're able and join us in worship. Amen. What a wonderful way to start our time together to remember the goodness of God, and it should humble us and make us feel so loved to know that our God knows us by name, each by name. Everything he's created, even the stars in the skies, he says he knows them by name. We have a wonderfully loving and intimate God, and he wants us to know each other as well, and uh, we're so looking forward to just the new freedoms we can have with each other as far as how we spend our time together. As it was mentioned already, today's Name Tag Sunday. We're going to have these from time to time just to help us get to know one another better. And uh, so uh, I want to encourage you during this time of transition, not just for our church, but in our society, regardless of how you feel as far as wearing a mask or not, I feel for myself, I'm going to have one in my pocket, and I'm going to be discerning with who I'm talking with. What's the best way to show love to the person that I'm talking with? I'd encourage you to think somehow along those lines as well. Um, we have a way of communicating with the church. We're always trying to find new and clear ways to communicate with the church. And what we're hoping is going to be the most effective for us is the use of an app. And so we have our WRBC Church app. And uh, as you come in the hallway, you'll see banners and there's a, a QR code. You can just scan that to get the, the app onto your phone. And there's a number of things that are helpful for that. First of all, if you're visiting us, there's a welcome card there that you can sign on and just let us know of your visit. We also have that in the chairs in front of you. If you're here, you want to take that out, you can let us know of your visit. But it also provides you uh, knowledge on how you can give, and it also gives you more detail than we can share here from the platform about things that are happening in the church from week to week. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is the merciful God that we serve if you're able, please stand with us. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Welcome to week number three of the Lent experience. There are two basic types of massages. There's the stress relief, just make me feel good and relaxed while I'm in here kind of massage. Then there's the deep tissue, therapeutic, get in there and fix me kind of massage. The first one is comfortable. The second one, well, not always so enjoyable. I get a deep tissue massage regularly because it resolves real issues in my body. The therapist finds areas that aren't right, then stays there, applies the appropriate amount of pressure. I squirm a bit, but in the end, I'm healthier and my body functions better. I don't always look forward to going into the massage room, 
but I always feel better coming out. Have you figured out where this analogy is going? Repentance is the spiritual equivalent of a deep tissue massage, and it's this week's Lent Experience Challenge. I believe in thinking positive thoughts, but I don't believe in the power of positive thinking. I'm not whatever I think I am. I am what I am. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made by God and created in His image. I'm dearly loved by my Heavenly Father. I'm saved only by His grace. And I'm marred by sin. I have a sinful nature. I don't live out His image. That is what He created me for perfectly. Sometimes I get it right, other times I get it wrong. There's sin in me and there's sin all around me. It affects me from the inside and from the outside. One day, everything will be perfect and we will not contend with sin anymore. Sin and death have ultimately been defeated on the cross and one day all believers in Jesus will enjoy his second coming and the sinless perfection of his everlasting kingdom. That's why repentance is such a wonderful thing. It's the primary way we deal with the reality of sin in our world and in our lives. It's a gift from God. We can honestly talk to God about it and find forgiveness, grace, and mercy, and course correction. When we identify the areas and allow the appropriate amount of what I'll call God pressure to be applied, it may be uncomfortable at first, but there's healing and restoration that comes with it. Okay, so I think I've taken the analogy about as far as is useful. Here's the truth. Repentance resolves real issues in my life. The primary issue it solves is the relational issue that sin creates between me and my Heavenly Father. I'd like to read a portion of 1 John to you, and then you'll be ready to engage in your Lent Experience Challenge for the week. Your challenge is to carve out a 30-minute block of time to spend on repentance. Your participant journal has a few more thoughts about confessing sin and repentance and includes a very specific and easy to follow template for how you can spend your 30 minutes. Now here's 1 John. We proclaim to you, the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we're living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin... We are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. The sermon notes this morning are in the bulletin insert, that little piece of paper on the one side, if you wanted to follow along. But also, if you've got the app, you can go on there and you can follow along with the sermon uh, this morning there, that way. Well, during the last two years, uh, office staff here at the church building have kept that big gate closed. It's been kind of like we're in a jail, and it's been closed. And this past week, if you've been down to the office, you'll notice that, that it's lifted now, and uh, we, 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 you can walk in and out, and, and it's a lot easier. But the funny thing is, is that all of us have staff when we come from the washroom, we go back and we use the little door anyway, even though just around the corner there's this 20-foot gap that we could walk through. I was commenting about it on Friday with Kathy, and Kathy said, you know, we're all creatures of habit. And it's true. We kind of have developed the habit of just using that door. And so therefore, I think twice this week, uh, past week, I walked through the door instead of walking around. Well, we're creatures of habit in so many ways and much more serious ways than just that. We're creatures of habit when it comes to sin. Not only habitual sin that we all encounter in our lives and sometimes we're not as in touch with as we ought to be, but also the way that we deal with sin can also be a habitual form that needs renewing of our minds, a change in operation, and sometimes subject like repentance is an important thing to address head on because we don't get an opportunity to talk about this stuff very often. And so we, this morning, are looking at the subject of repentance, and I'd like to call it drawing near to God because indeed that's what we're doing. Um, daring to draw near to God is uh, another way of saying it. There we go. And so this morning, as we look at this, I want to um, again remind us all that during these weeks, we are preparing ourselves for a, a meaningful celebration of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We are really meant to be practicing all of these things that we are talking about each week all year long. It's part of the, the furniture of our spiritual lives, and yet we don't always do all of them. We get sloppy in our faith. And so over these weeks, we're going to be practicing. Shelly, if you just follow along with me. I can't seem to get this working. Um, just following along, we started with talking about fasting, and then we talked about solitude. We talked today about repentance. We're going to talk about giving and forgiveness and Bible reading. This should be part of our everyday kind of walk with God, or maybe not every day, but a regular walk with God. But so often we don't really practice. We get sloppy and lazy. Also, I want to remind you, as the author in this video shared with us, these are very positive things. These are meant to remove things that are barriers in our lives to really a closer walk with God, a closer intimacy with Him, and more of a, of a sense of His love and His power in our lives. And so every one of these, I want you to know that all of these are incredibly positive in their nature. So though we might focus on physical fasting... Fasting becomes really the grace of God transforming these practices. Fasting becomes feasting spiritually, right? 
We are, we are concentrating on God. And we're feasting spiritually. And, and solitude becomes more of a concentrated time with the Heavenly Father. And repentance be, becomes removing the things that are blocking our fellowship with God. And giving is not just about losing your money or time, but rather giving is about multiplying and redeeming your money and time and seeing it put to service. And forgiveness is removing what stands in the way of another person in you and gaining a, bro a brother or a sister. And, and Bible reading is actually taking all the, the weird stuff out of your head and renewing your mind with God's truth and God's way that often you'll find if you're in a regular habit is relevant for that very day that you walk into. So all of these things are meant to be seen in such a positive light. But when we come to something like repentance, we just have this, ooh, yeah, repentance. And we have this very negative thought. So this morning, I'd like to just make four very straightforward comments about what repentance is and how we can observe it. And my trust and hope is that after today's message and as you go into this week, you might see repentance as much more of a piece of furniture in your spiritual house, your life, that is actually something very positive that is going to help you. So first of all, let's talk about repentance. It begins with godly sorrow over sin, followed by our confession to God. So let's talk. Let's talk about the big S word. You know what the S word is, don't you? You've already seen it mentioned. Sin. Sin, that word that has I in the middle. Sin. You know, 50 years ago, a psychologist by the name of Carl Menninger wrote a book and the book was called, Whatever Became of Sin? Okay, this is 50 years ago. Whatever Became of Sin? Here's what he writes. He says, is no one any longer guilty of anything? Guilty perhaps of a sin that could be repented of and repaired and atoned for? Is it only that someone may be stupid or sick or criminal or asleep? Wrong things are being done, we know, but is no one responsible? Anxiety and depression we will acknowledge and even vague guilt feelings, but has no one committed any sins? Where indeed did sin go? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? <laughs> of course, we know, we look at that and we say, yeah, yeah, we can redefine, we can recall whatever actions, motives, attitudes, we can call them something else, but we know in our heart of hearts that that uh, these are real things, these things that we call whatever we call them, this moral code that God has written on the hearts and on the conscience of every human being, we know that is something that we will all stand before God for and give an account of on one day that's coming. We know that intuitively, somehow deep down we know that. And even how we respond to the offer of solution for that violating of the code, we will respond to God on how we responded to His gift of salvation, His offer of forgiveness. Yet, people still try to hide from calling things sin. Well, you know, when the Apostle John writes his first epistle that we heard read just earlier, he's an old man. And as an old man, he was very concerned for the younger generation of his day because they had not known Jesus Christ in the flesh, and he had. Now, there's a lot of older people in this room that are concerned for the younger generation. 
because they have not known Jesus Christ in the same way as maybe us older people have grown up knowing Jesus Christ. Our culture in Canada is increasingly secularistic and and there is much more ignorance of God and of Jesus than there has been even when I was a child. And there continues to be all kinds of odd ideas about Jesus. In fact, even by the time John is writing this letter, there had already arisen in the first century A.D. many thoughts about Jesus Christ that were heretical. I mean, there were just all kinds of ideas. It's interesting to know how, how many people have an opinion about Jesus. There is this idea that, um, that he's not who he said he was. But John begins his epistle, and he says to this younger generation who did not know Jesus in the flesh, we heard him. We saw him. We touched him. We were taught by him, and now we declare to you. So he's earnest about this. Today you might talk to people, and to many people, Jesus would be a good teacher, an end times prophet, a Galilean holy man, an occultic magician, a Jewish rabbi, a political revolutionary, an Essene conspirator, a liberation theologian, an itinerant exorcist, a Torah-observing Pharisee, a New Age kind of philosopher, a socioeconomic reformer, a false Messiah claimant, and the list goes on and on and on who Jesus is. But John and the apostles are unequivocal and they believe that Jesus Christ is the actual embodiment of the living and eternal Yahweh God. That's who he is. And so he says in verse 5 of this scripture, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now you and I have a dark side. You know your dark side better than anybody else knows your dark side. But in God, there is no darkness at all, John says. You remember, remember the ivory soap ads. 99.44% pure. I always wanted to say, pure what? You know, like, what is pure soap? Bible says, John says, God is 100% pure. In him is no darkness darkness at all. Many people in the world have a concept of sin, but they deny that they cannot deny this moral code that's written on their hearts, on their conscience. But it's interesting. Have you ever talked to people? Have you noticed that their definition of sin never compares themselves to God or to Jesus? It's always comparing themselves to another human being. Have you ever noticed that? You're talking to people about their goodness or their worthiness or heaven or whatever, and what they'll say is, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. It's always that. It's always a comparison to another person, <clears throat> as if God grades on the curve somehow. I was, <clears throat> I was, uh, I perhaps have told this story. It could be that I'm forgetting myself here, and uh, if I start repeating myself too much, just take me aside Tell me, uh, you told that story last week, Terry. <clears throat> that, that'd be bad. Um, <clears throat> I actually know my memory's getting worse because this morning two people returned things to me that I left in their place. So something's going wrong. But anyway, <laughs> so the, the house that we live in, 
for the last 12 years, we have a furnace guy. And I'll call him Mike, our furnace guy. And um, one morning I woke up and uh, there was no hot water. So I phoned Mike. And Mike comes down and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, as I pray about meeting Mike again, this is a few years ago, um, I, I'm praying and I'm thinking God wants me to talk to Mike about God. But God, Mike shows up with another guy who happened to be also named the same name, Mike. We'll call them both Mike. <laughs> it's sure better for the guys with bad memory. And so he shows up, and, and they fix my hot, our hot water heater, and it was an element that was gone. Okay. So, so a couple of days later, I wake up, and I go to the shower, and it's cold shower again. <laughs> I phone Mike. I'm thinking, God really wants me to talk to Mike. And so I, I phone, and uh, Mike says, I'll be there. And he comes with another guy, same Mike. He comes with another guy, and uh, I don't get a chance to talk. This time it's the other element. I don't know how many elements are in hot water heaters. but And so uh, a few days later, I am laying in bed. My eyes are first open, first conscious thought, and I thought to myself, if I get up and I go to the shower and it's cold, God really wants me to talk to Mike. And so, surely enough, I, I get up, I go to the shower, it's cold, I phone up Mike, and I'm praying for him, and he shows up, and he's all by himself. And so, so I, I hold the light, and this time it's the motherboard. I don't know these things, I just pay the bills. And, and so, it's the motherboard of the hot water heater. And I'm holding the light, and Mike is fixing it, and when it's all done, I say to Mike, Mike, there's something I've been wanting to talk to you about. And he said, oh, what's that? And here, here goes, folks. Here goes. I said, Mike, if you were to die today, would you, would you, do you believe that you would go to heaven? And he stared at me eye to eye for what felt to me like a long time. I think he was flustered. And he said something like this. I was trying to remember this past week exactly. But he said something like that. He said, I think if you are going to get there, then I think I ought to get there as well. And um, that's, that was the end of the conversation. He, he didn't really, he kind of packed his tools up and he was out. I want you to know that I've talked to Mike since then. It wasn't the hot water heater this time, it was the air conditioner. But anyway, I talked to Mike this, again. And we didn't talk about God, but everything's cool between Mike and I. But the point I'm making is, have you ever noticed that when, when we talk about our, our standing before God, our righteousness to get to heaven, our, our, our whatever that's called, it's always a comparison with another person. But John says that's the wrong comparison. John says in God is their light and it's pure and there's no darkness in him at all. And if you're not comparing yourself to him, you don't make the grade because the Bible says all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That's the measuring stick, the pure Son of God. Now John's not done talking about sin. After setting forth the standard by which all sin will be measured, he goes on then in the same chapter 1 that we heard read, and he describes what sin does to us. 
And the main thing he wants to say in these, in these chapters is that he wants to say that it destroys, it disrupts our fellowship with God, and Jesus Christ is an sent to repair and restore what sin destroys. That's what he's basically saying. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Notice that both times he says, if we say. You know, you've got a whole bunch of people who are living their lives absolutely incongruently to the word of God and they're saying with their mouths, oh, me and Jesus, we're fine. Me and God, we're okay. You see, they're deceiving themselves. And John is very clear that there's this natural aversion to looking deeper, deep massage, looking deeper into your own life and acknowledging through a personal inventory what is God shining his light on? What is God putting his finger on? You and I are not naturally inclined to do that. And John in verse 9 says that famous verse, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. See, when we say that word confess, it means simply to, to say the same thing as. When you confess something, you're, you're agreeing with somebody. That's what it means. To confess is to agree with God. When we confess our sins, we're saying we're saying, Lord, I confess my sin. I agree with you that it was contrary to your, your stamped-on image of your likeness in, my, in me and what you've called me to. I agree with you, God. That's all you're saying. When you confess your sin, you're just saying, I agree with you, God. Guilty as declared. And that kind of confession can only occur when we truly agree with God, when we take ownership for our sin. Scott Haifman writes this, worldly sorrow over sin comes about because of the unwelcome consequence of sin. Godly sorrow is that heartfelt grief over rebellion against God that leads to a decisive turnaround in our behavior. So repentance is, begins with godly sorrow over our sin, a confession and agreement with God about the verdict, and then moving into a change. Let's move on, and I won't spend as long on the next three, but I want to say this. Repentance requires a change in our thinking, followed by a change in our behavior. When Jesus started his public ministry, Mark chapter 115, the very first sermon that Jesus preached publicly, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. John Stott calls those the twin demands of the gospel. Turn from repentance, turn to, put your faith in God. Twin demands of the gospel. We turn from our sin, we turn to Jesus, and we are forgiven. The Greek word for repent in this text, in, in, in all of the scripture, the, the Greek word is metanoia. Metanoia. Meta means changed after. Noia means think. So metanoia, repentance, means to think differently afterwards. Think differently afterwards. Okay? You have come to a recognition. God's put his light on something in your life. You examine it, and you think about it differently afterwards. No longer can you sort of excuse that. You move ahead. You think differently. And not just feeling sorry, not just changing your behavior. Someone who has committed a crime might feel bad because of the 
fact that they got caught. And they might even decide never to do it again because of that, but there's no indication that they've necessarily repented. The change in mind must agree with God. It must follow through, must recognize that God has been the primary one offended, even though the sin might have been against another person. That's why David can pray when he sinned against Bathsheba and her husband and so on. He can say, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, O God. So that you're right, you're justified when you condemn me. That's what David said. And we want to think, well, didn't he, didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Didn't he get sin against... Uriah and so on. But God is always the first one sinned against because you see he has a claim on our lives. He's created you in his image. He's knit you together in your mother's womb. He has given you your breath and your life and he has first claim on your life. And so this change in thinking is acknowledging that I've offended God as well as others perhaps and that it's inconsistent with what God has called me to be and do. I, so I confess that. I agree with God. I agree then and I change my actions because my actions have betrayed my beliefs. And uh, no longer do I justify it. My behavior changes. I stop walking in the shadows. I stop walking in the darkness. I start walking in the light. And I, and I learn that God doesn't condemn me when I bring my true confession to God. Let's go to the third one. And that is <clears throat> or 1 John 2. Let's, let's, let's take a look at 1 John 2 first. And so this is, this is after having talked about sin. John says, my, my little children, I write this so that you won't sin. But if you do sin, if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is our propitiation, he says. Now, this is very interesting, this word advocate. It's the word parakletos. It's the idea of the Holy Spirit is called the parakletos, the, the comforter, the counselor, the helper. It literally means one who comes alongside of to help you, to plead your case. It's the word used of a lawyer in the, in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is our lawyer. This is a courtroom scene that is, in, in, that is created in 1 John 2, 1. Jesus Christ is our lawyer. He comes alongside of us, standing before the judge, and he pleads our case. It's a very interesting text. He comes alongside, and, and it also says that he's also our propitiation. That word means like payment, like our atonement. It carries the idea of satisfaction. You have offended a holy law, and now somebody must face the punishment. There must be satisfaction, and Jesus Christ becomes that propitiation, that satisfaction. So he's not only your lawyer, but he's your lawyer that's come along and said, hey, by the way, if you're found guilty, I'll pay the cost. Wouldn't you like to have a lawyer like that? So I want you to imagine this now. I really want you to picture this, because this is, this is incredibly brilliant on the part of John inspired by the Holy Spirit. We're in a courtroom scene. You have the best lawyer ever. Okay, imagine that. And he's agreed to pay the penalty if you're found guilty. That's how good he is. Now, you also have the best judge possible because the judge knows your life inside out. <laughs> That's a brilliant and then finally, you have called the best witness to the stand, and he 
his ready because he has been with you the entire time of the alleged crime. So you think to yourself, well, this is a, this is a closed case. This is, I, I've got it made, right? Unless you're guilty, <laughs> right? Unless you're guilty. Now imagine that all three of these, the lawyer, the judge, and the witness, are the same person. God the Father is the judge. God the Son, Jesus Christ, argues your case before God the Father and brings in the witness, the Holy Spirit, who lives in you, who is always witnessing what you do, what you think, what your motives are, how your attitude is. He, there's nothing about you he doesn't know, and he's going to bear truthful witness. Imagine that. God the judge knows you completely. Jesus Christ the righteous, ready to pay your price, whatever it is, and the witness who's saying, I'm going to tell you everything about this guy. Now, with that in mind, can you understand the stupidity, the foolishness of saying, I'm not guilty? Can you understand how dumb it is to deflect and blame and deny and hide. No. You see, what, what's going on in that courtroom when you're confronted with your sin is that God the judge, Jesus Christ the lawyer, Holy Spirit witness, you know what they're waiting for? They're waiting your, for your confession. And then they said, there's a party out back. Come and join us. But guess what? You don't want to make your confession you're too proud. And so the party goes on without you. You don't get to go enjoy sweet fellowship with the judge and with the lawyer that's paid your price and with the Holy Spirit. That's what John's communicating here. Why do we do that? Let's move on to the final point, or the third point, sorry. Repentance is an intentional decision followed by a process of renewing your core beliefs. Core beliefs are why you do what you do. So we've got to talk about core beliefs if we're going to talk about repentance. Most of us have had the experience of trying to repent of habitual sin. I trust that as I even say that word, habitual sin, that something by the Holy Spirit will come to mind. And you, you try to repent. You know how repentance is a 180. You're, you're doing this thing, and, and then you, you turn, and you stop doing it. And every one of you know exactly that that 180 turns into a 360, doesn't it? And you get into that vicious cycle, that sin pattern of wash and rinse and recycle, and go back and do it all again. And so how do you, how do you break that cycle? How do you truly repent we, this is when we understand that repentance is an intentional decision. Indeed, it is a one-time act, but it is much more than that. It is a process that you must be involved in as a spiritual practice, just as much as prayer and Bible reading and fasting and so on. And so you actually have to address your core beliefs. There's something wrong at the belief level 
of your life that has to be fixed. Now, I'm not talking about up here, folks. I know that you can read the Bible and think right thoughts up here. I'm talking about the core beliefs that are down here, the deeper rivers of your life that flow through and cause you to do what you don't want to do. You see, like a Romans 7 experience. And so you start having to learn that this, this deep tree root system that keeps on bringing up this impulse to habitually sin, even though you don't want to, has to be exposed. To get at the root, you need to get at the core belief. What is the core belief under it? I learned, I learned in the last 10 years of my life that there is a core belief in me that's performance-oriented. I don't know why God made me a preacher. Way too tempting to perform. But there's a performance level that if I think that I'm doing good, if I think that you think I'm doing good, I think God's more pleased with me. (laughs) When God is not actually worried about that at all. And so that's one of the core beliefs that I've had to get at that underground river, that deep root. I had to take the the earth off and and dig out that root. You see, I have to start believing what God thinks of me instead of what I think God thinks of me. Like Chip Ingram said in the video this past week in the Romans 12 series, I know God loves me, but I'm not sure he likes me. (laughs) Do you ever distinguish that? Yeah, I know God loves me. He has to. He's God. Not sure he likes me. You're wrong. A very human-centered thinking. If I still believe that God's general mood over me is one of disappointment and just barely tolerating me, then the exchange of repentance is going to be a negative thing. And you've got to see repentance as a positive thing in your life. I believe that if God is for us, who could be against us? That verse alone, Romans 8.31, is enough to tell me God is for me. And therefore, repentance really is getting rid of the thing that blocks my enjoyment of peace with God. It's very, very positive. And when I start seeing repentance in that light, the pressure is off of me in my performance. The pressure is off of me of, oh yeah, i got to not screw up again. The pressure is off of me. It's not simply about me doubling down on willpower. Instead, at my core beliefs level, I am replacing the truth with the lies with truth. My mind is being renewed. I'm the proper understanding of God, of myself. And repentance is not a pressure cooker moment. It's a, it's a long, slow walk with God. Stop making repentance about something you do after you screw up for about a half an hour or maybe a half a day you feel awful and then God must be satisfied with my penance now and now I can move on. No, that's just stinking thinking, isn't it? And so rather look at repentance as this walk with God in those tender areas where you're vulnerable, where shame comes up and where you regularly fail. Start to see repentance as a relational process of blossoming under the sunshine and the smile of the love of God, the grace of Christ who's paid your debt, the presence of the Holy Spirit who witnesses your struggles and gives you more power. Repentance is a way of life now, not an event of shame. And you see the difference, don't you? Romans chapter 2, verse 4. 
It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not God's punitiveness that leads me to repentance. That leads me to try and go into the law-oriented, works-oriented, crazy thinking. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That's the last point now. The final point is that repentance is a positive removal of a barrier followed by the renewed intimacy with God. Repentance is that positive, positive removing of a barrier. It opens up the way to a deeper intimacy. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Friends, when we sin, we step back into the shadows. We step back into the darkness and walk in it. When we sin, we, we, we are somehow making a core belief mistake that says, I can't trust God. Like Adam and Eve in the garden when they had sinned. Why didn't they just run to God? They ran away from God. You do that too. Make repentance the first place you go. Run to God. It's an incredible, positive thing. And in the light of God's presence, when that hindrance of closeness to God is removed because Jesus Christ promised to pay the whole price, not just the price up until the time you've received Jesus, the whole price, then you can restore your fellowship with God. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You know, when you brought your confession to God and when you have made some decision, put something in place so that your behavior will also change to align with your new core belief and your confession, if you have regret that lingers on, that's not from God anymore, folks. That's from the accuser of the brethren. That's from your own performance orientation. That's from a works-oriented attitude that lives yet in your heart. You should have no regret. God says, let's get on the righteous path. Let's walk. Let's go enjoy the party. I've been waiting for this day. I hope that you see repentance much more in the light that God has given it to us as a gift uh, in the Scriptures. Well, this week, I encourage you, and again, these are all voluntary practices. You don't need to do anything after this sermon, but I encourage you, would you take some time in your, in your time alone with God? Just ask the Holy Spirit to shine his light on some area. And if he shows up in some area, or maybe a relationship that you're in will just provoke you in some way, and all of a sudden you'll say, oh, I know where I need to repent now. And you'll go alone with God, and you'll be able to just bring it to him and say, I, I want to get this in the light, God, so show me what I need to do. And then follow through. Because it's not a one-time thing, friends. It's a process, isn't it? I'd like us to conclude this time in my message with a corporate confession. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me right now, and we're going to, we're going to read a prayer that's been adapted together. And I'm um, just going to ask you to read with me, and then I'll continue in prayer uh, as we close the service and the worship team comes after that. So just read with me, would you? Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. 
and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. But thou, O Lord, art entirely holy and pure. Have mercy on us and forgive us, O God. We confess our sins and faults and repent of them. Restore us according to thy promises in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O merciful Father, not for his, for his sake, that we may live godly, righteous, and sober lives in true sincerity and in the power of thy Holy Spirit. To the glory of thy holy name we pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, would you hear our prayer this morning that in this corporate prayer might be hidden all the very personal prayers of our confession, where we have fallen short, where we have not lived as you've called us to live, and instead of us blaming others and denying and hiding, Lord, you the judge, you the lawyer, you the witness, you, you know us completely. We just bring our confession into your light, and we agree with you, God. You have a good verdict, and you have every solution for our problem. So would you, would you receive us this week? As we come to you in repentance, would you receive us and help us to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ who has paid the price? In your name we pray, amen. Lord God, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your great kindness towards us. It's already been said this morning that you never ask us to do something that is, is, is not positive for us. Lord, you are for us, and we give you praise for that. We give you thanks for that, and we know that when you ask us towards confession and repentance, you are inviting us to something deeper, inviting us to, to enjoy our relationship with you more, inviting us to experience your grace in a deeper way, and Lord, I pray, I pray, Lord, that we would not stumble over our pride I pray that we would not stay separate from you because of, of the discomfort of the word sin or the discomfort of the idea of repentance, but I pray that we would see that not as a condemnation but an invitation towards something beautiful. We thank you, Lord, that on every day it's already true that you've made a way for us, and I thank you that you invite us into it. I pray that you'd bless each one of us as we go from here. May you be glorified by this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.